Welcome to The Deep Dive. I'm your host, Philip McKenzie. I'm an anthropologist strategist with a focus on culture and humanity-centered design. I'm Brooklyn-born and Brooklyn-made. Every week, I will bring you guests from a wide variety of backgrounds who, despite their different areas of expertise, share traits in common. They aim high, push boundaries, and make things happen. Their experiences drive insights. On today's episode of The Deep Dive, I'm joined by Jonathan C. Augustine. Jay is a reconciliation scholar, ordained minister, and professor. In addition to serving as senior pastor of St. Joseph AME Church in Durham, North Carolina, and as national chaplain of Alpha Phi Alpha Fraternity Incorporated, he is also a missional strategist with the Duke Center for Reconciliation and a professor at North Carolina Central University's Law School. Jay often speaks on topics related to race, reconciliation, diversity and inclusion, and has received numerous national awards and recognitions for his work in civil rights and social justice. He received a Lifetime Achievement Award from President Barack Obama, the National Bar Association's 40 Lawyers Under 40 Award, and Ebony Magazine's 30 Leaders of the Future recognition. And we're going to primarily be speaking about his new book, Call to Reconciliation, how the church can model justice, diversity, and inclusion. Good morning, Jay. How you doing? Good morning. I'm doing well, Phil. And it's a pleasure to be with you, man. Thank you so much for having me. Man, thank you for taking taking the time. We've been we've been working on having this conversation for a while. And I'm really excited to talk about the book, about the work. And you know, one of the things that's really unique about your perspective is that you have served in so many different capacities as a as a scholar and as a community leader. So you you really have the opportunity to talk about these topics from a lot of different perspectives. So that's that's going to be a major thing that I think listeners will be able to take away from this conversation. So, you know, having said all that, my little preamble, let's kind of really get into the conversation, which, as I said, we'll deal quite a bit with your book, Call to Reconciliation, but we'll also go beyond that to kind of talk about the current cultural environment. There's some historical threads that run through this. And so there's quite a, a lot to unpack, right? Right, right. But I want to start where it's typical to start at the beginning, right? And you make this reference very early on in the book about gumbo. My favorite right. food on the planet, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> my favorite, I'm a native of New Orleans, my favorite food on the planet. So I want to give you an opportunity to, you know, just share with us why, beyond it being your favorite food, why that reference is so applicable to the work that you do to the extent that you started the book, kind of leaning into that as, a, as an example. Right. So when you think about our age bracket, for example, most of us came of age hearing about America as the quote unquote great melting pot. When you think about a melting pot analogy, you really think about a space of assimilation where you give up something that is authentic and something that is unique to who you are, something that's cultural in an effort to try to fit into the American narrative. That has its place. But I think gumbo is more appropriate, especially in this day and age, because as I think about a pot of gumbo, it's much, much different from soup. It's much, much different from a puree. You can look down and you can see the individuality of the shrimp. You can look down and you can see the individuality of the chicken or the hen. You can look down and see the individuality of the okra and the sausage. Those things maintain their individuality, but they come together to create something special in community. And that really is what the American narrative is supposed to be about. It's supposed to be about it respecting your individuality, lifting up your authenticity, 
and allowing you from a diversity, equity, and inclusion perspective to bring your full and authentic self to the table for a space of belonging. So I think the gumbo analogy is much more appropriate for us here in 2022 than any melting pot metaphor of yesterday. And, you know, I, I think what's interesting is that there's a a difference between the, you know, stated purpose of an America and sort of the aspiration of America, right? And like you said, the melting pot analogy was perhaps a, a useful one, though not wholly accurate for, correct. For, many, for many reasons. For many reasons, correct. <laughs> and, and Gumbo provides now a potentially new metaphor, a new story. Do you think that we're still in the aspirational phase of that, or are we in the making it a reality phase? So I think we are doing much better. I think we are not yet where we will be, but we're not where we were either, and that's a good thing. When I got onto Squadcast to record with you, I was asked for my name, but I was also asked for my pronoun. Okay. I lift up in the book identity diversity along with cognitive diversity. Cognitive diversity speaks to how one thinks. That may mean that I process information through a certain lens as a theologian and as a lawyer. You may process information through a certain lens as an MBA. Someone else may process information through a lens as a linguist. All of that speaks to cognitive diversity and how we think. But identity diversity goes to how I self-identify, how you self-identify, whether it's as an African-American man from the South, whether it's as an African-American man from New York with roots or ancestry in the West Indies, whether it's as a gay white woman, whether it's as a straight uh, Mexican woman, whatever the case may be, be it Methodist, be it Catholic, be it agnostic, however one self-identifies, again, from the gumbo perspective, we want a space of belonging where people bring their authentic selves to the table and they have a culture that welcomes them for exactly who they are. And, you know, at the same time, you know, there's some people out there who don't like gumbo, <laughs> right? Not necessarily as a, as a meal, but as a analogy to diversity, you know, they're like, nah. Understood. I'm not, right. I'm not really feeling these notions, right? And it's tricky because obviously, you know, if you're looking down on a plate, you can see that these things exist. But some would rather not see they exist or to whether or to whatever extent they do exist, they're ranking them. Right. right? right. So those ingredients that you and others might be looking at and saying, well, you know, sausage is no different than the chicken or, you know, the okra is no different than, you know, whatever. Right. Some folks out there are like, of course, okra is necessary you know, and sausage is necessary and chicken is necessary. But, you know, what's most important <laughs> sure. so, so is this, right? The, the American narrative has been filled with hierarchy as we look realistically at American history. It's possible to talk about it, to look at the social construct of race and not talk about the narrative of white supremacy and what it has meant since 1607 when the colonies were established. And obviously since 1619, something that's being taken off shelves, something that's being uh, vilified in schools. But since 1619, when the, uh, when the slave trade began, when you talk about the hierarchical social practices that we have, I address much of this in a biblical context in the book, in speaking of Paul's letters and what I like to call the food fight in the Corinthian correspondence. Paul is, uh, is absolutely against the hierarchical practices of wealthy having more to eat or eating first at a common meal, what they would have called communion in his day and age in the Greco-Roman world, uh, eating first or eating more than those who were let's say, economically downtrodden, for those who were economically challenged, because all people should have an equal space at the table. 
that's something that emanates from the Bible, but it's something that obviously, as you're lifting up, has not been practiced as part of America's social experience. We have social constructs, the categories of race, uh, black, white, etc., of very human-made constructs, but we also obviously have discrimination based on ethnicity. Uh, that goes to a discrimination where I can't necessarily distinguish the color looks the same. So in terms of a mutable characteristic, this group or this grouping all looks the same. But within that, we place a hierarchy on those who are white, uh, sometimes above those who are of Italian ancestry, sometimes above those who are of German ancestry, etc. Yet to the naked eye, they all may have the same uh, observant characteristics. So to your point, absolutely. The American experiment has been very bad with hierarchical social practices and not recognizing the equality of all humans. So I want to spend a little bit of time with the, the subject matter of the book, you know, and then continue to weave these ideas around diversity and sort of these social and, and civil movements. And it's best to start again, like reconciliation, like to a lot of listeners, that is a, an abstract term right? They might be familiar with generally the, the word, right? But in the context in which you're using it and presenting it in the book, you know, what does reconciliation mean? And also, what what is it demanding of us to do? Sure. So number one, from a popular social perspective, when we hear that term, we think about the 1990s in South Africa, in the wake of apartheid, the truth and Reconciliation Commission, a commission that was obviously brought together and assembled uh, by Nelson Mandela with Desmond Tutu uh, as its leader, uh, one that sought to bring people together and to find common ground for their living in spite of the fact that they had lived so separately because of the jury segregation, or what in that country I would call the jury segregation for so long with the institution of apartheid. But the word reconciliation in and of itself, as much as its social impact is to bring people together, the word emanates from scripture. Uh, it is something that is found primarily in the New Testament, primarily in the Pauline corpus, we call it, or the letters written by the Apostle Paul. It is something that I unpack in a threefold capacity in understanding its foundations, I think, are very important for looking at exactly where we are now, specifically for what we saw in the midst of the twin pandemics of 2020 with uh, obviously COVID-19, but racism and the, and the Black Lives Matter movement, which really sought what I call civil reconciliation. So to get to that third at context, civil reconciliation, just quickly I'll unpack. If you think about the image of the Christian cross, it has two planes, the vertical plane and the horizontal plane. The vertical plane speaks to what I call salvific reconciliation. Christians believe in a very uh, a Christocentric perspective that we are saved, literally reconciled in our relationships with God through Jesus. So because of Jesus's sacrificial suffering, Christians believe we are reconciled vertically. We get to go to heaven when our time here is done. Socially, because Jesus died, of course, we get to go to heaven. But socially, Jesus also lived. That means when you look at the horizontal plane, it speaks to an equality among people and the very equality that we were just discussing. It means equality among black and white. It means equality among Jew, Gentile. In the biblical context, it means equality across the board. But that is an aspect of what I call social reconciliation. So if you think about the planes of the cross, again, the vertical plane, salvific, the horizontal plane, social. And social, to me, speaks to uh, the context of America, looking at the civil rights movement. When one thinks about Martin King and thinks about his training, of course, as a minister, it is no coincidence that ministers were the ones who led the effort for what I call 
civil reconciliation. In other words, if we hold these truths to be self-evident that all people are created equally, then all must mean all. So civil reconciliation is prophetic justice. It is literally taking it to the street. It's as the old adage goes, speaking truth to power, or as I like to say, speaking truth to institutions of power and demanding social equity uh, because it is required in the marketplace. It is required in the social marketplace. So again, the three contexts and, and while the, let me just fast forward to, to go back to where I began, insofar as the Black Lives Matter movement and the, and the protests that we saw in 2020 so prevalently were much, much more secular in nature, their foundational organizing was a direct derivative of the of the civil reconciliation we saw in the civil rights movement. So I, I equate them, although they were very secular, I equate them with what clergy and clerical leaders did in the 19th. So again, social, excuse me, salvific reconciliation, the vertical plane of the cross, social reconciliation, the horizontal plane of the cross, and civil reconciliation, a community ethic rooted in prophetic justice. You know, I think that was a great answer. And in that conversation, like you said, you walk through these these three basic tenets of, of reconciliation, these pillars that this idea stands on. And I want to spend some time, most of the time actually, on both the social and the civil, since that allows us to kind of go through the political environment we are in, the legal environment we are in, and quite honestly, the philosophical direction that we're in, right? Because all of these ideas have met with resistance, you know, which is always something that I want to emphasize that as much as these seem like obvious ideas, they're not obvious, right? Right. So the old saying is whenever there is an action, there is always a reaction. And when you when you think to your point, when you think about the progressive nature of clergy Uh, Dr. King and others in the civil rights movement, that action brought on the reaction in 1968 at what we identify as the end, the quote unquote end of the civil rights movement. Richard Nixon ran a law and order campaign for president, uh, uh, capitalizing on white resentment to black advancement, using what historians call the Southern strategy, attempting to court evangelical voters who at that time were were not involved in politics, really, believe it or not, right? It's hard to imagine that now. It's hard to imagine that evangelicals more in the 19th century would have sided with uh, Frederick Douglass and would have been more engaged with abolitionism opposed to the Jerry Falwells and those that we saw uh, coming of age in the uh, coming to, to mass popularity, I should say, in the in the late 1970s and early 1980s. But that action of King and the progressiveness brought on the reaction of evangelicals coming together, uh, uh, being courted by the religious right uh, and the um, uh, and the Republican Party. And a fusion that Nixon sowed really came to fruition in the 1980 presidential campaign with Ronald Reagan. Famous quote, you can't endorse me, but I can endorse you. And with the very telegenic actor and that alliance came together with a campaign that began down in Mississippi in the same place uh, where Cheney, Goodman and Schwerner were, were killed and found in a, in a river. That same campaign is what gave us years later. That alliance is what gave us years later. Make America great again. So uh, to your point, you think those things would be very natural, but every action has a reaction and they've been very polarized and opposing forces in how religion and politics have been intertwined uh, in the United States. Absolutely. And I think what we're also facing is the reality that it's not an equal or opposite sort of thing. So when you when you talk about there being a reaction, right, 
one of the things that that interests me is that you know from a physics perspective which is where that really comes from it's like you know every movement has like an equal and opposite reaction right i think one could make the argument that the rise of the evangelical right it's coupling with the republican party and the current backlash that we're seeing today this white backlash is not an equal response to civil rights movement, right? It, it seems like the power of the state, the, these ideas are very much an oversized reaction mm-hmm. to, to what has been a, a call for, you know, basically inclusion, right? Correct. Like, Correct. and safety, right? In the sense that Black Lives Matter is, and, and other movements are a response to, in oftentimes physical violence against black bodies and, and black community. So having said that, how does to to whatever extent you agree with that, well, number one, but number two, how does reconciliation from a social and, and civil perspective um counteract that movement? You know, those countervailing forces. Sure. You lift up what I like, the reference to the physical violence done against black bodies in the Black Lives Matter movement being one, two, to the uh, go against or to obviously speak truth to power with respect to that, that white supremacy narrative, I would respectfully say that the social violence and the political violence has been done with repeated attempts to deny full civic participation. And we generally see that with attempts to deny the right to vote. So I would argue, I have argued repeatedly that the most empirically successful measure of the civil rights movement and hence of civil reconciliation was passage of the Voting Rights Act of 1965. When you fast forward now, we have seen African-Americans rise in power. We've seen unfettered access to the ballot in places that were called, quote unquote, covered jurisdictions uh, under the Voting Rights Act. We've seen the language of the act largely eviscerated by a, by a 2013 decision, Shelby County uh, coming out of Alabama, uh, Shelby County Holder, then against the other former uh, Attorney General of the United States. Shelby County was a strange decision that left the Voting Rights Act intact. It left its its primary meat and potatoes provision, Sections 2 and Section 5, intact. But what it did is it said that Section 4B, which was a coverage formula of what jurisdictions are covered, Section 4B was based on antiquated data, and it was no longer constitutional. That means the Voting Rights Act now is watchdog legislation that has bark, but it has absolutely no bite. So consequently, you saw in Wisconsin, many jurisdictions in the 2016 presidential election, you saw many people in Milwaukee and other urban areas in Wisconsin who attempted to vote and polling places were changed, locations were changed. Time was not uh, allowed for people in line to vote. And by a very slim margin, Donald Trump carried some states that otherwise he would not have carried and make America great again came to power. In the wake now of a free and fair election in 2020, where you had absolute access to the ballot because of safety precautions. We had to make sure people were mailing ballots. We had to make sure people had opportunities to do drop-off ballots. For the obvious reasons with the pandemic, you've gotten stop-the-steal narratives that are absolutely baseless. In Georgia, we understood that the Secretary of State there, who was a Trump supporter, who is a Republican, say this is baseless. There's never the the level of election fraud to overturn an election. Uh, It's not the case here. These allegations are baseless. Nonetheless, because of this stop the steal narrative, you now have state legislatures, primarily in the South, but state legislatures around the country, which are, again, attempting to 
circumvent access to the ballot, attempting to make it harder for black, brown, and poor people to vote. That is a problem. That is a slap in the face to the progress that was made in the civil rights movement. And that is what we obviously are seeing now uh, in terms of access to uh, to civic participation. And, you know, I I think, you know, when I'm hearing this, these ideas, it, it really gives us an opportunity to, you know, dig into them a little bit more, right? And and I'm I'm listening to your answer and I'm kind of reflecting back on, you know, what it felt in those individual moments, right? And, you know, obviously voting is important, right? I think very few people would de- deny, very, very few serious people would deny that voting doesn't matter, right? As much right. as people do say that, the simple-minded among us. Um, <laughs> but I do think that there is a a challenge, there deserves to be a challenge to the narrative that voting in and of itself will solve these tremendous problems that are part of a society that is very much steeped in white supremacy, late stage capitalism, and everything that comes with with those things, right? That have a lot of exploitation and extraction built into them. So my question is, so much of this sounds like to me, right, that we are asking for like extraordinary measures on behalf of the aggrieved in order to work past the way the system operates just sort of naturally, right? And so I want to get your response to that, right? Because if I look at 2020, that required like a yeoman-like effort to get that done, right? right? And yes, there is access to voting, but waiting in line for 10, 12 hours to vote isn't in the spirit of what I would consider like fair and equitable access. Correct. Right? And, and, and that and that sort of time period, which I don't believe you're exaggerating, and that sort of time period is done very deliberately when you close polling places in minority communities, when you outlaw what is called out of precinct voting. So if you if you are working on one area of town or in one area of town, and you are a waged employee, meaning you don't have the luxury of coming and going as you please as long as the work is done. You've actually got to be there and got to punch a clock. It, it is literally a poll tax if you've got to take off work to go to the opposite side of town, perhaps where you live, to vote, right? That's a poll tax in, in, in a very modern context. So when, when you make it harder, and it's been very deliberate, harder for black, brown, and poor people to participate in the democratic process. I'll give you a specific example of what I mean. I lifted up Shelby County in 2013, the decision that uh, really made the Voting Rights Act almost unenforceable and powerless in many regards. In the wake of that, almost days after Shelby County, the North Carolina General Assembly, my now home state, the North Carolina General Assembly, passed House Bill 589, which made some draconian uh, photo ID law provisions, put photo ID law provisions on the books that were targeted towards African-Americans. Not just me saying this, if you say photo IDs, you know, it sounds so oh my goodness gracious, what's wrong with somebody showing an ID to vote? The way the language in the bill was, the way the bill was intended, just like you referenced in certain communities, 10 to 12 hours to wait to vote. When the case was challenged and it went to the U.S. Fourth Circuit Court of Appeal, the federal appellate court came back and said, this law targeted African-Americans, quote unquote, with surgical precision. The North Carolina General Assembly is just one example of Southern legislatures that are doing the same thing to increase wait times in certain communities, to make photo ID uh, laws very onerous to prevent people from participating in the democratic process, uh, overturning election results, things that we've seen coming out of Southern jurisdictions 
in the wake of the 2020 election. All of these things are consistent. They're predictable. They're an attempt to eliminate what really is supposed to be democracy and a full opportunity for citizens to participate in the political process. That is all part and parcel of what civil reconciliation is. It seeks to have equality among people in society, equality among people in governance, and a full opportunity to have your voice heard. And when I speak to, again, this sort of extraordinary efforts, right, that we have to undergo, one of the things that that I routinely wrestle with as a person is, you know, listening to the other side, right, which is, which is very hard for me to do because the other side is largely unlistenable to, right? But <laughs> nonetheless, we do what we can. But what really struck me as I went through the book was the concept of forgiveness goes hand in hand with, I, I think it's fair to say it goes hand to hand with with reconciliation. Absolutely. And I want to give you an opportunity to speak to why forgiveness is so important. And then I want to link that to the the civil notions of how our society operates. You know, forgiveness is not something that you're going to see on many like law statutes, right? Correct, so correct, so correct. obviously it's a it's an idea that lives with us personally and socially, but to some extent, how do we translate this idea if we can, to what extent we can, to the civil sphere? Right. So the reconciliation paradigm, and thank you for such a, a thought-provoking question, the reconciliation paradigm really is like two sides of a coin. And, and by that, I mean there is a side of the dominant class or the subjugating class. The opposite side would be the side that has been dominated or the side that has been subjugated. In America, we usually look at those two as in the, in the lens of race, and we talk about white and black. It also can apply to the gender dynamic of male being the dominant class and female being, uh, I hate to use the term, but subservient class. So the class has often been marginalized. So if you look at it to lift up forgiveness from the perspective of African-American, to, to put it in the, in the social construct of race, from the perspective of an African-American who has been subjected uh, historically and, and culturally subjected to the horrors of white racism, reconciliation says that this class has got to do the hard work, the very deliberate hard work of forgiveness for a variety of reasons. We can we can walk that dog down several park trails, right? For a variety of reasons, forgiveness is so important for the individual and it's so important. Again, this is a very Christocentric concept. And so I will lift up, uh, as a Christian, I lift up Jesus, right? Because on Good Friday, we herald Jesus. One of his seven last sayings was, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Let me also go back in a very practical context uh, for those people who may who may not be feeling the Jesus thing. I'll go back to the, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in South Africa. When Nelson Mandela was going to become inaugurated or installed as president, he reserved a seat of honor uh, at his inauguration for, watch this, his former jailer. And the point was he gave he didn't want his former jailer to have any emotional power over him. He had a seat not to taunt him, but to say, all of the past is the past. We're moving forward. It's a new day in this country. I have a seat of honor for you. So forgiveness is hard. It's the point I'm trying to illustrate, but it's absolutely necessary in the reconciliation paradigm. The opposite side of the coin, and I think this goes to the, to the legal aspect of what you're referencing, the opposite side of the coin, when you look at the hard work of the, of the dominant class or the class that has been doing the subjugating, the hard work there is a change in behavior. There's got to be a deliberate change to move away from social structures that perhaps have inured to your benefit 
in years past and quite frankly in centuries past to create a space of belonging and community where people can can feel whole and be their authentic selves and go into the to the diversity lens again. So it's two sides of a coin. Both of them require incredibly hard work, but the business of reconciliation or the work of reconciliation is not for the light at heart. One side, forgiveness is so important, and on the opposite side of the coin, a change in behavior is so very important. That is the only way to move really toward a concept of reconciliation where people are brought together. And, you know, it's, it's interesting that, that you, you made the point, you know, I'm, I'm smiling because I, I love when this happens, right? You said, you know, forgiveness is, is necessary. And literally, like, I'm looking down at my notes and one of my questions is, is forgiveness necessary, right? Like, <laughs> you know, it's like, and so I'm, I'm still going to ask that question, right? Because I'm, you know, I totally get the concept. Right. And it's not like you need to convince me of the concept. Right. Like this is not what this is all about. This what I'm what I'm trying to get at is that I think there's so many ideas that we have as part of just the operating system of how all of this works. Right. And, you know, one of them is like empathy is really important. And, you know, I'm, I'm making I'm trying to get at a point that's hard for me to get at because I think it combines like a bunch of stuff. Right. That is different from the Christian tradition, but has kind of been woven into the Christian tradition. So mm-hmm. take a little bit of a walk with me, right? As I as I try to like make sense of this, because not everyone is a biblical scholar like you are. Sure. Right? Sure. Some people come to religion from their families. You know, some people have like a, a hodgepodge of what I call like cultural religion. Right. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, in the United States, it's primarily a Christian country. So it's kind of everywhere. Mm-hmm. Right. It's mm-hmm. kind of assumed and kind of cooked in. And then you got this kind of self-help guruism that kind of comes out of it. Like it's a mix of stuff. And forgiveness to me oftentimes feels like a personal project, where it's like even with Mandela's situation, like I, I've heard these examples before and, you know, no disrespect to Nelson Mandela, but I'm like, good for you, dude. Like what I'm, what I'm trying to get at is I don't know if I need white people's behavior to change to the extent that it is legally enforceable that they can't do certain things, right? Like if this person doesn't like me or like my group or they don't like trans or they don't like this, whatever, lots of shit I don't like. Right. But a society has to form where your personal whims can't affect my ability to to live and prosper. Right. So that's what I'm trying to get at. I got you. Let me take a minute to lift this up. And I do want to I want to share a biblical reference that I think has a much, much, much broader social application. When I think about society, number one, society is comprised of individuals and there is group and there is individual xenophobia which is nothing more than fear of the proverbial other with a capital O. I fear that guy because he's black and I haven't been around black people. I fear that person because they're gay and I haven't been around gay people. That's nothing more than xenophobia. My mother used to say when I was a child, she said, son, there's nothing wrong with being ignorant. And there's a difference between being ignorant and being stupid. And she shared with me early on, ignorance is when you just don't know. You can cure ignorance with exposure. So once you are exposed to something, you no longer are ignorant. You now have learned what it is. But when you're stupid, you know better and you choose to act like you don't know better. So there's a difference between ignorance and stupid. Let me lift up a biblical verse that I think speaks to, it does away with xenophobia because it it gives a recognition 
of commonality among people. And I want to tie it back to the concept of all meaning. If we hold these truths to be self-evident, all people are created equal. In the Acts narrative, the book of Acts, the 10th chapter, you receive that there's a narrative of Peter, the apostle Peter, who is a devout Jew. The, the narrative is portrayed where Peter is a devout Jew. So, of course, the dietary restrictions, Peter doesn't eat pork. Peter, you know, the, Peter is a devout Jew. He's kosher, right? Peter is kosher, as we say today. Uh, but Peter is praying on a rooftop and Peter goes to sleep. He's very tired. He goes to sleep and he has a divinely inspired dream where, where God is telling him, get up and kill and eat. And Peter is seeing pig and Peter is seeing swine. And Peter says, I can't get up and have a ham sandwich. Are you kidding me? God, I can't eat those pork chops. My language, obviously, here, right? God, I can't. Do you know who I am? God, I'm a devout Jew. That stuff is profane. And God responds to him and says, how can you call profane that which I have made? Peter then, in the specific reference, I want to make the 34th verse of, of Acts 10, excuse me, of Acts 10, Acts 10, 34, Peter says, I now realize in the King James Version, God is no respecter of persons. Or in a, in a more contemporary version, I now realize God shows no partiality between people. When you read that narrative on, Peter then baptizes Cornelius as the first Gentile and welcomes him into the church. So the first proverbial other, the first someone who ethnically was not a Jew is admitted to, uh, to the church. The point I'm referencing is that if all means all, we have to hold these truths to be self-evident that we all are God's children. We all are created equally. To your point earlier about the gumbo, the hierarchy of things, there is no hierarchy. All means all. So we need not have xenophobia. We need not have hatred. We need not have enmity if we're willing to take it down to basic fundamental principles. Perhaps because I'm from New Orleans and, it's, and food is such a part of the culture. Perhaps because as the book begins with the reference to gumbo, which is intended to be a metaphor, but it also is literal. There's something to be said about the willingness to have tabletop fellowship. There's something to be said about the willingness to share a meal and just to sit down black and white and to do away with the phobias and the isms that we so so wet ourselves to and just recognize, my God, God is no respecter of people. We all are God's children. So I think there's something important in terms of the reconciliation narrative and the paradigm of, of giving forgiveness, of moving past preconceived phobias and isms and recognizing that we all are human beings uh, who are created in the image of God. Yeah, absolutely. Right. My questions are not pushing back against the idea, <laughs> right? They're, they're more trying to, you know, really get to practical ways in which we can build this into our society, even looking past when we are coming from different faith ideas or no faith ideas at all, sure. right? And one of the challenges is as someone that has loved history and, and considers myself pretty good at it, I think about these notions of like exposure, right? Because so much of the civil rights movement was built on that, right? Obviously, we had lived in a segregated world under Jim Crow. And a lot of the civil rights movement, not exclusively, was about access, right? Like breaking down segregation and getting us in a space where integration is the key, black and white people are together, and boom, you know, utopia, right? I'm simplifying <laughs> and, being, and being a little funny with that. I know it was far deeper than that. And I think reconciliation moves in the same spirit, right? Mm -hmm, that mm -hmm. We can, all human beings are deserving of safety, happiness, sanctity, all those things. So whatever extent we can move systems toward that, we should, we should do that. 
Right. Right. But I, I think about the way in which the United States has been built, people have been exposed to one another, right? Like white people in the antebellum South lived among and subjugated black people for centuries, right? Proximity did not change the inhuman treatment, right? The inhuman treatment was the hierarchy of how they saw things. You know, that was a natural order of things. The same way I would, I try not to do this anymore, more the open up the window and push the bug out guy than I was back in the day. But they treated Black bodies as disposable in every way, shape or form, right? And and every system then built upon that, you know? So it became not just the way I believed, but it was entrenched in law and practice. Sure. And, and that is, and it was entrenched in law and practice because those people who were beneficiaries of the system were making the laws. They, they were the yeah. ones who were controlling the practice. But to go back to that, the two sides of the coin, again, as hard as it is on one side to engage in forgiveness for the behavior of subjugating, the reciprocal side means those that have been power have got to recognize wrong is wrong. And as my mother used to also say, son, this is as wrong as two left feet. And if something is wrong as two left feet, the institution cannot continue. So it's got to be a change in behavior, even when it does not inure to one's personal or pecuniary or economic benefit. So reconciliation requires reciprocal work and it's hard on both sides is the point I'm trying to illustrate. Absolutely. And so the legal perspective of this, and you know, you make this point when you discuss Martin Luther King and Letter in a Birmingham Jail, right? And other work that he's done that the, the civil rights movement was directly effective due to its pushing against law. Civil disobedience. Civil disobedience, right? Making that distinction between what is a law and what is justice, right? And I want to give you an opportunity to bring the justice notion into into our conversation because I think it's essential to the way you've put the thesis together. Thank you. Thank you so much. So from a, from a historical perspective, number one, as a minister, it's so moving to me the timing of when Dr. King went to jail in Birmingham and the social forces, the biblical forces that mobilized in his mind when he wrote on napkins, on newspaper clippings, on what have you, letter from Birmingham jail. So when you think about typically the Easter holiday, Easter is, is big business commercially, but Easter is a time that is very sacrosanct in the religious community because you celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. It's a time where most pastors are preparing for the most important sermon of the year. Uh, it's a time where everybody's dressed in, hence the expression, their Sunday best, right, getting ready to go to church. But on Good Friday, the day that began the Easter holiday weekend, Martin Luther King Jr. was in downtown Birmingham protesting, marching without a parade permit, knowing he was going to go to jail because Bull Connor, the, uh, uh, the police commissioner in Birmingham, had promised he was going to take him to jail. King went to prison and spent that Easter weekend in 1963 in, in behind bars in Birmingham, and he wrote this treatise on civil disobedience, citing the biblical example in Daniel 3 of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the three Hebrew boys that, that under similar circumstances would not bow down to King Nebuchadnezzar during the Babylonian exile, recognizing that they would have a punishment that was that was correlated or consequences that would correlate to their actions. But the civil disobedience they believed in recognized that the legal structures in place were not right. The legal structures were not just so in order to have a more just result, to look for a higher plan or to look for a divinely inspired law, 
opposed to a humanly flawed law, they engaged in civil disobedience. So King is very deliberate in citing Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in letter from Birmingham jail. He is also deliberate in citing, I will say my namesake, I'm Augustine, but Augustine, I'll claim it for the point of this, right? <laughs> and citing him and saying that an unjust law is no law at all. So King was willing to put himself and his body, his physical existence at issue, recognizing the, the rates at which black men were lynched publicly, but also recognizing the danger he put himself in and going to jail, not in New York City, in Birmingham, Alabama, right? Recognizing the danger he physically put himself in, but it was the right thing to do. He was motivated by what I unpack as a suffering servant theology, uh, one that is that is rooted in the Old Testament, but one that also correlates to Jesus's sacrificial suffering of saying that when I'm willing to sacrifice, when I engage in civil disobedience, when I do something that's outside the scope of what is quote unquote legal, but I'm doing it because it seeks justice, then it is redemptive. That any suffering, that any sacrifice I have to make associated with that is redemptive. That's a deep fundamental aspect of Christianity that obviously permeated King's thought. And that same concept of civil disobedience that we saw when he spent Easter weekend in jail in Birmingham is clearly what we saw throughout the streets in 2020 as Black Lives Matter protesters refused to adhere to curfew laws or things that they felt were unjust because they were used to try to control them. They wanted to go for justice rather than safe conformity with law. So King's work still is very influential for all of us today, I guess, is the point I'm trying to trying to And you know, Martin Luther King is is obviously a transformational figure. But you know, these ideas are very radical ideas, right? And he was a radical. You know, he was someone who, beyond his clear ideas of faith, was also anti-capitalist. He was someone who clearly wanted to transform the way in which our society worked. He centered love as one of his major tenets, that that community base of love. You know, agape, you know, we've talked about that. I talk about it a lot in my work as well. Right. So I'm emphasizing that because this is someone whose radical message has been de-radicalized as as we have moved away from his murder as, and, and he's been now a national holiday. And, and so let me let me just briefly respond. I couldn't agree with you more. But King, let's not forget, was a Christian minister. And I want to lift up someone who was more radical than we, than we readily recognize, and that was Jesus himself. Jesus was a radical. Jesus would be vilified if he was leading the type of ministry he led back then. In this day and age, he would be vilified by many of the, the right-wing evangelicals. If you think about Jesus, it's amazing that he begins public ministry after a period of fasting and praying. And as we're as we're taping this, uh, we are in the in what Christians call the Lenten season, a time of preparation and penitence for Christians. But Jesus begins ministry as captured in the fourth chapter of Luke by going back to his home synagogue by reading from the scroll of the prophet Isaiah and lifting up a narrative of social justice. I have come to bring sight to the blind. I've come to set the captives free. I've come to proclaim the Lord's favor. He comes in a very liberating breath. And, and, and Jesus is one who scripture portrays as turning over tables in the temple, as a radical who wants to overthrow power systems, as an ethnically oppressed Jew, someone who was oppressed by the, by the dominant uh, system of the, of the Roman Empire. It's amazing that evangelicals have domesticated Jesus. They've shown Jesus as somebody who's as meek as a lamb, but they don't show him as a radical uh, having fair play. So the question I ask, one that another scholar, Obrey Hendricks, lifts up in one of his books, The Politics of Jesus, who domesticated my Lord, right? 
So I'm, I'm using that in reference only to say, to your point, yes, King was absolutely radical, and he, he was emulating Jesus in, in Jesus's ministry. And, you know, I think that's a that's a great point, right? Because we are, are dealing with, you know, the realities of, again, that pushback, right? That white grievance that is looking to roll back to whatever extent progress that has been made, right? And it is this push through the the white evangelical movement. And we've seen this with voting rights. We've seen this with critical race theory. We're seeing this with affirmative action. We're we're seeing it across the board. So, you know, I'm I'm looking at the time and I want to make sure that we are on time with this, right? But I I want to get to a a couple of 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 big ideas because you do mention affirmative action in in the book, right? As as one of these ideas that is that is controversial. And I'm always puzzled by affirmative action because I think it, not in its existence, but in the the notion that I think it com- really confronts, which is meritocracy, right? That it usually is in a regard of, well, you know, if we have things like affirmative action and we're not getting the best, right? And the best is tied to this idea of meritocracy, right? And is meritocracy one of these notions, much like the melting pot, that we really need to like, you know, get rid of, right? Because when has this ever been a meritocracy? <laughs> Correct. So I, I lift up affirmative action in a, in a scriptural context. And again, I, I tie it very closely to the scripture I referenced, Acts 10.34, where God creates a space, a divinely inspired space of community between two proverbial others, between a Jew and a Gentile, where Peter is very deliberate veils are lifted from his proverbial veils are lifted from his eyes and he realizes my goodness gracious we've got everything in common because he's put in social community with someone who is unlike him god did that in acts and the institution of affirmative action one of the victories i will call it of the civil rights movement does it in a very human context uh when you when you are in a classroom in a space of higher learning and and you're able to learn what's in the book that's one thing but you are also able to learn socially from others who come from very different ethnic backgrounds, very different uh, geographic backgrounds, and a variety of ways in which you can capture, again, identity diversity, as I lifted up earlier in the podcast. It's a wonderful learning space. So There's some thought leaders that, that, that have researched, and I document in the book that show when you talk about diverse environments and bring people together from various backgrounds, they are much more likely to solve problems much more quickly than if it were a homogeneous group. So if all of the people thought the same way, if all of the people came from the same set of social circumstances, we'll continue to look at things the same way. Things will never change. But if there is diversity, if there is a gumbo, if there is a human gumbo, we will solve problems much more quickly uh, because of diverse perspectives. That's really what affirmative action attempts to do. It helps us to become better citizens, just like Peter in the biblical text became a better human being because he was exposed to somebody who was not like him. Affirmative action does the exact same thing. And, you know, we have two segments before we end the show, so I want to make sure I get to those. But I want to bring in this idea of solidarity. It's one of the primary ways in in which, you know, I, I do my work when I think about culture. It's sharing values, right? How does one make space for solidarity in these movements when... A lot of conversations are usually like interfaith connections. You know, the civil rights movement was was also a big part of that, calling people of different faith together in order to to protest 
and to move things forward. And there's obviously famous pictures of many different faiths coming together to march with with Dr. King and what have you. You know, in a in a world that has you know to what degree more secular civil rights movement. I think the the church. I won't say lost its way is not what I'm trying to say, but it's not quite the leader in these spaces that it has been maybe from a historical perspective. So having said all that, you know, how do we build a solidarity that includes interfaith conversations, but also includes secular movement politics as they exist today? And and how did that all connect to reconciliation? So that'll be my final question before we get to the final two segments of the show. Sure, sure, sure. Thank you so much. So reconciliation, I think, is a sliding scale. And again, I contextualize it in those three aspects, beginning with the foundation of, of, of a salvific reconciliation, obviously moving to social reconciliation, and then talking about civil reconciliation, which really speaks to an equality and a full human participation for all. So if all means all, I do recognize ethnic solidarity or racial solidarity, to use the social construct term, that we as African-American men, for example, may have some things in common and we want to stand on solid ground, that white women may come together and say there's some things we want to stand on common ground with, right? I do recognize that solidarity, but through a reconciliation lens where we seek equality and full civic participation, a pot of gumbo, if you will, I am so encouraged as I look back you referenced the, the the pictures and the images of King and others who marched with him. When I think back about that time frame, yes, I did see some of the quote unquote other, but primarily those were African-Americans. Primarily those were African-Americans. When you think about the imagery that was captured from the Black Lives Matter movement, from the many protests in the wake of Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, you are talking multi-generation, you're talking multi-ethnic, you're talking multi-racial, you're talking people who came together around a common narrative of Black Lives Matter in this type of injustice and white supremacy has no place in the United States of America. That is so incredibly encouraging. It's so encouraging that we no longer are in silos, but if all means all, and we hold these truths to be self-evident that all people are created equal, that means reconciliation says we all can come together on common ground and we don't have to do so in silos anymore. So I'm so encouraged by the direction in which the country is moving. I think it's hard work ahead of us, but I'm, I'm very much encouraged by the direction in which we're moving. I love encouragement, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> so I, w- I want to get us to Off the Dome. And Off the Dome are just a, a few quick questions. Like I said, first thing that comes to mind, right? So these are, are meant to be a little fun, even though, you know, as you said very eloquently, we do have a lot of work to do, but it is powerful to see multiracial, multi-gender movements that are going toward a better world, right? So my first off the dome question is, you know, obviously gumbo, we've talked about it all through this show. We're recording this in the morning. I'm hungry as hell. <laughs> and all this gumbo talk hasn't changed. You know, you're a, a native son of New Orleans, right? So if, you're, so if you're if you're recommending a non-gumbo dish that anyone who comes to New Orleans must have, what is that dish? Catfish, without question. Catfish. <laughs> <laughs> any, any particular way or just 
What? So I am I am on a health kick now, and I try not to eat fried foods, but I budget myself for fried catfish. I would highly recommend fried catfish. Delicious. <laughs> okay. My second question is, and there's three of them. What's more difficult for you as someone, you know, we started this show and I want to emphasize this again. Like you're someone who has a legal background. You're a legal scholar. You're a theologian. You know, you've done all these amazing things, right? So I think it's rare to find these types of backgrounds and expertise embodied in one person, right? So I'm I'm not, I don't want to take that for granted. And and you're a academic, right? You are also a professor. Right. right. So you're an educator. Right. right? So that's a third thing. So having said all that, what is more difficult for you to prepare a sermon or a lecture? Um, I think a sermon. Right. Because I serve in the African-American tradition where, you know, logos, ethos, pathos, you, you logos, you got to do some logic. You got to do some teaching ethos. There's got to be a certain amount of credibility where people recognize, OK, he spent the time in on this. But the pathos, you got to take people to an emotional place that perhaps they had not been. So the combination of those three things, that reflects, that's reflective in my work, my, my lecture work in law also. But the but the sermon with the drummer coming in in the background, with the organ in, in the background, with the choir singing and people standing and praising, that's a that's a synergy that takes some work to get to. So it's, it's more difficult and it's more time consuming to prepare a sermon than it is an academic lecture for sure. Absolutely. And my final question is, let's picture that you're at like at a terrible place, right? You're either on like a deserted island or a Q convention, just someplace that <laughs> someplace that you know no sane person would ever want to be, right? All right. So these are your options. <laughs> and under those con- constraints, would you rather be by yourself or with your worst enemy? Mm, mm. Someplace where desolate. If I'm with my worst enemy, at least I know they're miserable too, right? I'm joking. <laughs> you know, I I find such comfort in, in alone time. I'll be honest with you. I'm a reader. Um, I, I love to write, obviously. So I make such productive time regardless of what's going on around me. I probably would want to be alone in a space like that. Okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. And, <laughs> you know, we, we kid our Omega Sci-Fi brothers, right? Like, kind of kid. <laughs> All right, man. So I, I want to get us to the the final segment of the show, which is the drop. And the drop is just an opportunity for us to share anything with our listeners. It can be a book, a song. It doesn't really matter. It's just something that they should check out when they get an opportunity. So I'm going to go first. And, and my drop is actually a, a very big book called uh, Middlemarch. And it's authored by, from a literary perspective, if you look up and get copies of the book, it'll say George Eliot. That's a pen name. The real woman's name was Mary Ann Edwards. But because of the patriarchy at the time, she published under a male name. And Middlemarch is just an incredible book. Many of Marianne Edwards slash George Eliot's works should be wrestled with and, and read, but this one is one that's kind of making a, a comeback in, in a way. It wouldn't typically be the one assigned in high school because it's it's big as um, as big as hell. But um <laughs> I've noticed it's it's making a comeback. It's making a comeback with me. And I don't know what that's signaling about the culture at this moment, but it's signaling something. So I want to point okay. it out um, to check out Middle March, Marianne Edwards slash George Eliot. And that's my drop. All right. All right. And I get a drop, too? Of course, man. OK. All right. I want to drop. There's another African-American scholar, Aubrey Hendricks. And the last book I read is called 
Christians against Christianity. I, I referenced Hendricks earlier in talking about uh, the politics of Jesus with my quote, who domesticated my Lord. But this book, Christians Against Christianity, is an incredible read. Its focus is Christian nationalism. It looks largely at the, at the right-wing evangelical Christians, but the phenomenon of Christian nationalism, this, this conflation of cross and country, wrapping the, the cross and American flag and saying it's either us or if you're against us, against our manifest destiny, we're going to take you out. This is the, is the theology, is the political ideology that you saw at the, at the January 6th insurrection when people were out with T-shirts that said, T-shirts and flags that said, Jesus is my savior, Trump is my president. That conflation is so incredibly troubling to me. It is very anti-democratic. It's, it's something I think we all should know more about. So I want to drop Obrey Hendricks, uh, Christians Against Christianity. That's awesome. That sounds like a, a really good one and a, and a really prescient one. Right? Absolutely. Like the, Absolutely. The, the, the rise of these moments or the, the continued expansion of these moments, because as you said, they're not new. This goes back to the KKK and the John Burt Society and things that are 100 years and more old. But um, as much as we can shed a light on it and call out its growth and its hypocrisy is critical. So, brother Jay, thank you so much. Thank you, Phil, for, for, for being on the show. I want to I want to read the title of the book again. It's it's called to reconciliation: How the Church Can Model Justice, Diversity, and Inclusion. Jay, it's been a, a pleasure having you with me on the deep dive. The pleasure is all mine. Thank you again for having me, Phil. You can listen to the deep dive via Apple Podcasts and our website, thedeepdivepod.com. Download, subscribe, listen, and share. If you like what you're hearing and enjoy what me and the team are putting together, then leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. You can follow me on Twitter via at FarFlungPhil. To all my listeners, wherever you are in the world, I thank you. See you on the other side.